You can grab a seat. You know, uh, sometimes we just find ourselves afraid of things in life, right? Sometimes we find ourselves fearful of things that uh, maybe sometimes don't actually pose an actual threat. Uh, as my wife and I were watching all these cats be terrified by cucumbers, the best we can guess is that maybe they think it's a snake uh, or they just hate cucumbers. I can relate. Uh, I don't react quite that strongly, but I will run away uh, in some way. Uh, maybe it's something, though, that we're afraid of that's not vegetable-related. Maybe we're afraid of... We were afraid of those monsters that lived under our bed or in our closet or, you know, over in the next room. Maybe we are afraid of that, you know, idea that if we graduate from Texas A&M without a fiancé, we will forever be alone, like until death. Like, we, maybe we have that fear. And yet, we have these fears that many times are unwarranted. Sometimes we fear cucumbers. And you know what? They're not that, they're not that bad. I mean, they taste horrible, but they won't hurt you unless you try to eat a whole one at once. That would probably hurt you. But we have these fears of things that don't actually pose a threat. And the sad thing is that many times as believers, as Christians, as people who have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, sometimes we are afraid that we can lose our relationship with God. Sometimes it's maybe not even a mental acknowledgement. Maybe sometimes it's just in the way that we speak or in the way that we act. Sometimes we show through our thoughts or our minds or our words or our actions that we're afraid that we might somehow lose our relationship with God or, in other words, lose our salvation. And I want you to know that based upon Scripture, based upon what God has revealed to us in His Word, I can tell you with 100% certainty that that is not possible. That that is not a threat. That that's just a cucumber sitting there behind you as you eat your cat food. It's just a cucumber, man. It's, it's something that we're not, we don't have to be afraid of. That's not something that we need to be fearful about. It poses absolutely no threat. Over the past five weeks, culminating in today, we've been talking about salvation. And we've been doing this because the church as a whole loves to talk about salvation. Uh, maybe we've grown up going to churches that talk about how you need to get saved and how you need to find salvation. You need to kind of secure salvation for yourself in these variety of different ways. And, and what's tragic, though, is many times in our upbringings, while we hear salvation talked about very consistently, sometimes we don't hear it talked about with a lot of clarity. Sometimes we hear terms or ideas or concepts thrown out that we never actually pause and define, that we never actually stop and explain. And so what we've been doing over the last five weeks, what we're finishing up today is a study on soteriology, which is just a big church word for the study of salvation. And we've been doing this. We've been trying to look at the the nature of salvation, the the who, what, when, how, why of salvation. Because the better we understand it, the greater we will appreciate the incredible gift of life that God has offered to humanity by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, as I said, what what we're focusing on, what we're landing on, what we're ending on, is this idea of assurance, this idea of eternal security, this idea that our salvation is secure, that our salvation is complete, 
in Christ. And it's a concept that's all throughout Scripture. But it's explained very clearly and wonderfully in Romans chapter 8. The end of Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bible or your phone or whatever it is, if you want to look at Romans chapter 8, it's where we're going to kind of be settled this morning. And what we see is, again, uh, an idea that's spread all throughout our Scripture, but it is very clearly explained and argued at the very end of Romans chapter 8 by Paul as he's writing to these group of believers in Rome. He's saying, look, essentially, uh, to give you the context, he's, he's talking through uh, chapters 3 through 8-ish are all about what does it look like to find God's righteousness? What does God's righteousness look like, and how do we receive it? And he talks about how, you know, this righteousness is only made available by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says that those who accept that, who gain that righteousness, it's more than just knowing that they're going to be saved for all eternity. It's also there's, there's blessing, there's spiritual blessing and work that occurs in their life because of that salvation, right? We've been talking about this, again, for the last five weeks, this idea that it, ultimately if I determine, if I realize, if I acknowledge that I'm sinful, that I'm broken, and that there's nothing I can do to fix that, if I've come to realize that, wow, I am so just, just, just broken so much that I, I can't even fix it. I, I can do nothing to repair myself. When I acknowledge that and realize, man, I, I have to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven onto earth to live and die and rise again on my behalf. And if I acknowledge that, if I accept that, if I put my trust or what we call faith in that, I can be forgiven of my sin. I can not only be, he's not only my atonement, meaning he paid my penalty and redeemed me from sin, but I am also accredited righteousness. To where lastly, last week what we talked about is how once I am saved, there's this process of sanctification that awaits me, where God makes me more and more holy, where God conforms me to the image of himself. So Paul's going through Romans 3 through 8, and he's talking about all these different concepts. And what I love is that he caps off this discussion of salvation at the very end of chapter 8 by just assuring the people, by, by really securing them in the knowledge that their salvation is complete, that their salvation is safe. That's why he starts off chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know all things work together for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's saying, look, if we are in truly the, the sons and daughters of God, in a sense, Jesus Christ is our, our brother in that sense. He's the firstborn of us, the first to be raised, right? You remember Paul talked about him being the first fruits of resurrection. And yet one day we'll all get to share in that with him. We share not only in his death, but we also identify with him in his resurrection. He says this is something that we can be sure of because God chose us. God predestined us to be these people. When we talked about election, this is that idea that God knew he would call some to faith, that he would call some out of sin and out of death, call them out of that, out of being children of wrath and, and allowing them to be children of his, his, his sons, his daughters. He says, man, this is something that we can know, that we can trust in. It's, it's these people who he predestined, that he called, and that those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Paul's speaking to believers, and he says, look, we can be so secured in our knowledge that God will one day allow us to reign with him in glory. He speaks about in the past tense. This is the thing that the Greeks would do. If you were so certain of some future state or some future circumstance, 
You could even speak about in the past sense. We have a few fellows that are engaged at this point. Uh, one, of our, one of them, they're a couple, they're going to be uh, married in about two weeks. Uh, and they're even at the point, I just heard this morning, where some people ask them, like, hey, so how's married life? Right? And they're like, well, you know, two weeks from yesterday, uh, you know, it's not quite there. Uh, you know, and they want it to be here sooner. But yet they, what other people acknowledge in their relationship, they're like, man, that, it's so secure. Like, we see it coming. Like, we know it's already there. Uh, sometimes I almost think, like, it already happened. Like, oh, yeah, you guys have been married for what, like, 10 years now? Gosh, like, whoa, you look good, though, right? Like, that, that, that we have, Paul's making this argument. He says those that he called, those that he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, meaning saved, and those he justified will be glorified. He says we can know this. We can, we can rest in this. And we can know it for three main reasons. Paul's going to go into basically three central arguments for why we can be so sure of that glory. We can be so sure of that salvation. The first one is that he argues that God is for you. And God has proven himself to be for you. He says, what shall we say then about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? Paul's saying, look, if believers are the adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, the God of the universe, it says we don't need to fear anything. It says if God is for you, what could possibly be against you? Christ himself, that's why he says, you don't need to fear anything in this world because I've overcome the world. If God is for us, what could be against us? And maybe we doubt, well, is God really for me? Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like this is that. Or, and we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. But if I really am really doubting, man, I don't know if maybe God is really on my side, if God's really for me as a believer. Paul says, he sacrificed Jesus Christ for you. The ultimate sacrifice. Jesus Christ gave his life, suffered and died for you. What more proof could you possibly ask for? Because God is so much for you that he was willing to give himself completely up for your sake. And that's something that we, man, we know we're hardwired to acknowledge. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's the ultimate sacrifice. Someone to, to give up their life in that way for another. Like we acknowledge that is, that's the ultimate, that's the pinnacle of, of heroism. That's why in our stories that we know and love and tell each other, our stories, whether it's TV shows or movies or books or whatever it is, we always, the, the best, kind of biggest heroes in our culture are the ones who make incredible sacrifices for the people that they love. That's why we see it in Star Wars with Luke Skywalker, seen here fighting an empty white room. And he is so heroic that he gives up his life. He goes through this training, does all this crazy stuff. He goes through this big old process and, and gives up his life for the sake of of the people around him to bring, you know, to defeat the empire and usher in a new era. That's why we see it in the Hunger Games with Katniss Everdeen, seen here, fighting trees. And she is a hero. Why? Because she gives up her life. There's this big moment where she's like working through all this stuff. And she's like, I don't know if I want to do it anymore. And they're like, no, Katniss, do it for the people. And she's like, oh, okay. And then she does it. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. It's kind of like that. I don't know. Give her my paraphrasing. But we see this in her story. That's why we see it. Sorry, we see it, we see it in Hunger Games. We see it in the grand opus of Harry Potter with Neville Longbottom, right? The true hero of the Harry Potter saga. 
<laughs> seen here just being himself. Give more power to him. But we see it in his, in his actions, the very first movie. What it all comes down to is they're like, oh man, I don't know. Like, Gryffindor is not necessarily going to win the most points, and that's important apparently. And, and all of a sudden, though, we realize, no, but Neville. He sacrificed himself for his friends. He stood up to his friends. He did these things. Even at the very end of the book, he like kills the snake and stuff. And you're like, all right, cool. Like he does stuff. We're like, all right, he sacrificed himself in this way for the sake of people around him. He's a hero. We see this in our stories. We see this in scripture. We've seen this proven through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. J.K. Rowling herself, I was just having a conversation where she had this interview where she talked about, yeah, like actually I, I essentially just made Harry Potter the, the Christ story. She acknowledges that because, spoiler alert, he kind of, he basically dies and then rises again. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> or does he? I don't know. <laughs> You're that far behind. Uh, but we see this in our stories. We see this sacrifice as the ultimate act of heroism. Paul says Jesus Christ did this. He set the bar for this. This is what we have through Jesus Christ, is a sacrifice. So how could we doubt? How could we doubt that God's for us? He died for us. He gave up everything that he might be with us. He's proven himself to be our hero. And yet so many of us still have those areas, or those moments, or those situations where we ask ourselves, is God really for me? Does he really care? When I see my parents' marriage turn into that, when I watch my relatives struggle with this condition, when I see my friends walk through that circumstance, is God really, is he really for me? Paul says, it's more than just knowing that he's for us. He says he's also justified us. Paints the image of, of a court scene. He says, Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? He says, It's, it's God who justifies. He says, Look, sometimes we can think about it in the sense of, of a court scene being played out where there are charges brought up, right? There's a, a defense and there's a, a prosecution and there's a jury, there's a judge, that kind of thing. He says, And look, when we look at it in that sense, there aren't charges that are going to stick to us. Why? Because God has justified us. God is the one who justifies. He's talking about the fact that we are prosecuted because of our sins against God, right? God is not only the judge in this circumstance, not only the prosecution, he's also the victim. That's why we see repeatedly in scripture this idea that we sin not against just our brothers and sisters, against the people around us. We sin against God. Psalm 51 tells us that I'm aware of my rebellious acts. I'm forever conscious of my sin against you, God, you above all I've sinned. I've done what's evil in your sight. So you are just when you confront me. You are right when you condemn me. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. None of us have an excuse. Everyone has rebelled against the Lord. And he's right and he's just in condemning us. The fair thing, the just thing to happen to all of humanity is, is death and destruction, separation from God. And yet, that's not what happens. Which is a little strange because we, we want justice, right? Like we want justice. Again, it's, it's hardwired into us to want justice. 
In July 2001, uh, in a small town in Georgia, there were two thieves who broke into a home that had been vacant for about a year. Uh, the, the owner had passed away, and so they, took, they broke in, they took all the furniture, just everything uh, that was left in the house. They took all the furniture, all the kind of appliances, all that stuff, uh, and they left and, you know, cleared out real quick in the dead night. And, and because it had been vacant for so long, it took a few days before the neighbors noticed that the door was open. So by the time that they noticed and called the cops, the thieves were, you know, long gone. But what these thieves weren't counting on was being tracked down by the super sleuth known as Jessica Maple. Jessica was the granddaughter of the lady who used to own the home before she passed away a year prior. Jessica was uh, her granddaughter, and she uh, heard about the robbery and asked her mom to take her to the crime scene. And so her mom, being very permissive, was like, okay, and they went and uh, she noticed something that the police had actually missed, which was that in the garage there was a broken window, and there were fingerprints like all around the windowsill. And so Jessica kind of gathered all this evidence and, and took it to the police and showed it to them. They're like, okay, thanks, thanks for that. And as they kind of started to follow up, they weren't going quite as fast as she wanted, and so she started checking around at pawn shops in the area looking for the furniture. And sure enough, she found all of the furniture at one pawn shop. Uh, the dudes had just walked to this one pawn shop and unloaded an entire grandma living room worth of furniture at this single pawn shop, which the owner was just like, okay, and took it, right? But she finds this place, and she asked the owner about, like, if he had ID or anything from the guys that came in. Sure enough, uh, he had kept their, he had pictures of the guys, he had their IDs, and he gave the information to her. And so she decided, you know, I could give this to the cops, or I could just ask, ask my mom, who's already proven herself to be a little uh, cavalier with my safety, uh, to take me to the guy's house. And so that's what they did. She asked her mom to take her to one of the dude's houses. Uh, and so they showed up at this 17-year-old's door, and he and his mom were at home. And so Jessica and her mom sat down with him and his mom, and they talked about this. And she brought forward the, uh, the evidence that she had collected and the information that she had, uh, and, she, and he denied it and was like, no way, not me. But she kept questioning him and questioning him until he actually broke down and confessed to the robbery right there. And we hear stuff like that, and we're like, oh my gosh. One, that mom needs to, like, boundaries. I don't know, something, it's a little dangerous. But two, that's pretty awesome. Like, there's something in that we're like, okay, you go, you go, Jess. Like, you get it, Maple, maple Girl. Like, we're, we're excited for her. Why? Because there's something within us that resonates with justice. We want to see justice done when there's wrong committed in the world. And we get that from God. God wired that into us to desire justice, to want justice. And because God himself is perfectly just, he has to be just. Which is why when we sinned against him, something had to be done. A penalty had to be paid. Which is why God in his infinite wisdom and mercy gave us Jesus Christ. Who is the one who will condemn? In other words, who could possibly condemn us? Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. He is the one who is at the right hand of God, who also is interceding for us. Paul says, we've been justified. That case is closed. Jesus Christ himself stepped in and took our punishment. That's the atonement for our sin that we discussed a few weeks ago. He redeemed us from sin, meaning that he paid this great price with his own death to deliver us from sin. 
from destruction. And we've been saved once for all. There's no longer any condemnation to be found. There's no longer a charge that can be brought against us. Christ died once for all. No further sacrifice is needed. That's why a year ago when we were in the book of Hebrews, we saw that he has no need, speaking of Christ, to do every day what those priests do, the priests of this world. Jesus Christ has no need to offer sacrifices first for their, or they have need to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus Christ, he, he did this in offering himself once for all. His sacrifice is so much greater than anything we can imagine. He died once for all, and we can be secure in that. Justice has been served. We have our own Jessica Maple who is willing to go to our garage and find those fingerprints and deliver justice where we need it most. Jesus Christ died for us. There's no more condemnation to be found for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's proven himself as our justifier. And yet sometimes we still find ourselves facing condemnation. Whether it's from someone we've hurt or someone who's just known us for a long time. Maybe it's something just an internal Thing, a way that we view ourselves, condemnation we, we lob against ourselves, a thought that we have, that we're just too broken, that maybe Christ didn't pay for that thing that we did. Maybe it's the way we view others. Maybe we still lob condemnations at, at fellow believers who have offended us or hurt us in some way, a family member who cut us deep. Maybe sometimes we wonder, did it really cover everyone forever? And ultimately, man, those, those struggles that we have, those questions that we still ask, like, is God really, is he really for us? The questions that we ask of, am I really justified? Am I really free? Does he, is she really justified? There's no condemnation. Paul wraps both of these questions, both of these issues, both of these, these problems that arise, he wraps it all up at the very end of chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, where he takes all of these problems and all these issues that maybe we still raise and, and these doubts and these anxieties we maybe still have about salvation, and he sums it all up at the end of chapter 8 and telling us that, you know what? God's love is greater. God's bigger than all those things. God's love for his children won't be interrupted by anything. It won't be interrupted by any sort of circumstance or situation we might find ourselves in. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 36. As it is written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's speaking to these Christians in Rome who are starting to face some of this stuff, who are starting to face some of this persecution, some of the suffering. He says, is that going to separate you from God? When you, when you face these things, the trouble, the distress, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness, the danger, the sword, when you face this stuff, is that going to somehow negate your relationship with God? Have you somehow been separated from God's care? He says, no. He says, in all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. Paul says, we might still have doubts about those situations where I maybe don't think, man, is God really for me because I'm seeing this kind of destruction, I'm seeing this kind of sin, I'm seeing this kind of death, 
I've seen this sort of disease in my life, in my family's life, in my friend's life. And yet Paul says, you know what? God's still for you. God's still with you. Ultimately, we're going to find victory in those things. Those things might not be resolved in this world. We might still see our friend or our family member struggle through some horrific circumstance, a relational breakdown, a marriage breakdown, cancer, whatever it is. We might still see that. We don't necessarily get delivered out of that in this world, but he says we will have ultimate victory, meaning that one day there's a world coming, there's an existence coming, there's a life coming where none of that will exist, where none of that will occur. There's a day coming where death will no longer have any sort of sting in our lives, where evil and sin and death and destruction no longer reigns over us. He says we have victory complete victory in Jesus Christ. We can see this and trust this because, man, we saw it in the life of Christ. God allowed Jesus Christ to suffer. And yet he was still victorious. We will be allowed to suffer. And yet we know that one day we'll rise again. We know that we'll be victorious. We trust what we read at the very beginning, that ultimately all of these things are somehow working for the good of those who love God for his sons and his daughters. How exactly does that work? I have no idea. Are there certain circumstances that you could bring up that I can't find any hope in? Absolutely. But we can know and trust that even when we don't see the light, we don't see the hope at this point, it's coming coming. It was promised to us. It was proved to us by Jesus Christ rising from the grave, and we share in that. We share in that victory, even in the midst of suffering. My daughter, Charlotte, is wonderful. She's 11 months old now, and you know what? Sometimes, though, she suffers. Sometimes life gets a little hard. Sometimes you wake up from your nap of two hours one of two that you get every day. But you're so, maybe still tired. And maybe as you're trying to wake up, you're, you're a little hungry because you haven't eaten in like two hours. And so you got kind of that, that little twinge of hunger. And maybe sometimes your mom puts you, of all places, in your high chair. And when that happens, sometimes you experience anguish and suffering. And you have just giant tears immediately appear on your face ridiculous. But surely in that moment, she thinks, surely I've been separated from the love of my parents. Surely I've been placed in this chair to be left alone, to suffer in, in silence and not silence, actually in cries, very loud cries. And yet she realizes, even at this moment, she's realized her, mouth, her hand is in her mouth because she now realizes, oh, I'm in my high chair because that's where I eat because mom's feeding me right now. It's okay. This was all designed. This was all leading up to me being fed and having that food. Oh, it turns out mom still loves me. Dad still loves me. It's, it's there. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. I'll wait until tomorrow at the exact same time to do this all over again. <laughs> She was being prepared for lunch, right? Like it was, the food was coming, and yet she thought, ah, I don't know, in the midst of this, she was blinded from that. She, her perspective was, was narrowed to the point that she didn't see the hope on the horizon. 
we can find ourselves suffering in a, in a moment of difficult circumstances that could lead us to believe, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I did something that angered the Lord. Maybe I did or, or said something that could have pulled me away from God, that has somehow negated my salvation, that somehow lost my salvation, that somehow proved that I was never truly saved to begin with. We might think that, and our perspectives might be that narrow, but I'm telling you, this passage is clear that that doesn't happen. There's no circumstance, there's no situation that will separate you from the love of God, your Father. Even in the midst of suffering, you are remaining in Christ's love. Even in the midst of suffering, you will one day share in His victory. That's why we perform baptism. That's what we're showing and illustrating through baptism. That's why for the past couple of weeks, I, I've told you that we are going to get to experience and enjoy the ordinance of baptism in two weeks, December 6th, when we gather together uh, once again before the very end of the semester as our last time all together on December 6th, we will come together and we're going to have worship, we will have communion, and we will most importantly have baptism. A time where we get to declare to the world that we're united with Christ in his death, but we're also united with Christ in his resurrection, in his victory over sin and over death. We're born again to a new life. We're new creations. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. That's what we celebrate in baptism. That's what we symbolize in baptism. So if you have interest in that, I would encourage you. Find a howdy card. That's, they're all around the room. There's a bunch in the back. Find a howdy card. Give us your contact information. Write somewhere on there that you want to be baptized. Turn it in. I'll contact you. We'll set up a time where we can chat. We already have about seven or eight people who are, have expressed interest that are, have been coming in that I've been meeting with for the past week and a half. We're going to be baptized on December 6th. And I'm so excited about that. And I want that number to be 20. Whatever. I don't care. Like, let's, let's do it. If you have any interest in that, if you've never been baptized as a believer, I would encourage you, consider it. Let us know. Give us your contact info so I can reach out to you. Because we want to show our friends, our family, our world that nothing separates us from the love of God. There's no situation that will interrupt that love. There's no situation. You know what? There's nothing in all of creation. Paul says it's not just uh, the circumstances that we're saved from. He says we are, ex- we are safe in anything, anything you could possibly imagine in creation. God's love for his children won't be broken by anything. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul just goes all out. He swings for the fence and he says, this is just everything I could possibly think of. He says, this is this gigantic blanket statement where he's saying that absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. Your father, once you've been adopted as his son or his daughter, you are secure. Death and life don't separate us. Good, evil, don't separate us. Angelic spiritual powers and beings won't do it. Nothing present in our life, nothing future in our life, nothing will remove us from God's love. And some of us are immediately, maybe even pushing against that a little bit. We're like, well, what, what, if, what if I lose my faith? What if I deny my faith? 
What if I walk away from this life or from this calling or from this family? What if I choose to leave? What if I mess up just so bad? What if I do this thing or say that thing or engage in that lifestyle, give in to that sin, give in to that thing? What if I do these things and Paul's saying nothing, nothing? We did nothing to earn our salvation. You could do nothing to earn your salvation. So why would you presume that you can do something to lose it? You did not work to gain that salvation. There is no work that will lose that salvation. It's a gift of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God. I will always love my daughter. I will always love Charlotte. Now, is that love based upon the fact that she's awesome and laughs and is just the cutest thing I've ever, I've ever seen? <laughs> no. Is my love for her based on the fact that she lets me, in cooperation with my wife, we were on the same page with this, put boxes of Cheerios on her head <laughs> to form Cheerio helmets, thereby calling her Cheerio girl? <laughs> No, my love is not based on that. My love is increased by that, but my love is not based on that. I would love her even if she fought that helmet, which she did at the beginning, but chose to eventually accept. I would love her even if she threw that helmet off. That's, that's fine. I would still love her. Why? Because it's not based on her work, because it's based on our relationship. It's based on the fact that she is my daughter. That's why I love her. That's why I will always love her. Now, can our relationship be strained? Could we reach a point in our relationship where, where things happen, where words are said, where actions are taken, where lifestyles are adopted that would strain our relationship? Absolutely. Can that relationship become unhealthy? Absolutely. But it will never be broken. It will never be nullified. It will never be made void. Our relationship with God is secure. He's our Father. Nothing's going to change that. God chose to love you even when you were dead in your trespasses, even when you were in open rebellion against Him, even when you were a child of wrath. God chose to love you. He knew every single dark, deep, secret, issue, struggle, problem that would arise in your life. He knew everything that had happened in your past, that was going to happen in your present, that was yet to happen in your future. He knew all of these things, and yet he still chose to love you, to redeem you, to justify you. Nothing in this world will take that away. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this? If all of this is true, if we really trust what God is saying in the Scripture, how do we respond? First and foremost, it's by trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's, it's acknowledging that you do need salvation, that you do want to be a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. That's our first response, to accept that gift of life that's been offered to us. But for those of us that have done that, for those of us that have trusted in Christ, who are sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, what, what do we do for a God who has chosen to save his elect through the good news of Jesus Christ? who is sacrificed as an atonement for our sins, that we might be justified and sanctified 
and one day we'll be glorified. What do we do in response to the fact that we were assured of our salvation, that nothing would ever separate us from that love? How do we respond to this incredible gift of life that God has offered to humanity by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ? What do we do with that? Good times for a change See the luck I've had Could make a good man turn It's an advertisement for like a retail shop in Britain, just so you know. (laughs) But what do we do with this incredible gift? Man, we give it to others. How do we respond to this beautiful gift of life that God's offered to humanity by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? We share it. And we share this gift. The greatest gift any of us have ever received. We, We give it away. Over and over and over again. We walk into this break with our family, with our friends that maybe don't know God in the way that we know Him, that maybe knew Him and yet have sort of walked away. We, we walk into these situations and these relationships and we share that gift. We tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. We walk into our houses with our roommates. We walk into our classes with our classmates. We walk into work with our workmates. We walk into these people's lives and we share this gift with them. And hopefully they're willing to listen to us (laughs) because our lives are already filled with grace. Christianity is the only religion, it's the only faith that's built upon grace only one. So let's be people of grace. And when we exhibit that in our lives, people will listen to the words we have to say. And we allow those words to communicate the gospel. So who are you going to share the gospel with this week? This week. So the band's going to lead us in a few more songs. We're going to take a moment and we're going to talk with our neighbors. We've done this before. This is your first time, I promise. It's not scary. But what you're going to do is you're going to find a neighbor, one or two people around you. Maybe you know them beforehand. Maybe you don't. Introduce yourself quickly and and you're just going to share with that person a name. A person that you know needs to hear the gospel. Hopefully this is a name that you've already given in this room a few times. Hopefully this is a person that you're already praying for. Hopefully this is a person you're already mindful of. If not, ask the Lord, just give you that name. Draw it to your mind. Share with that person just just a name. Don't have to get background, don't don't have to get the story, just a name. It could be someone who has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It could be someone who has placed their faith, their their salvation is secure, their relationship is secure, and yet it's strained, yet it's unhealthy. Both of those people need to hear the gospel. Maybe that name is your own, because you feel like you're at a spot where your relationship is strained. 
Share the name with your neighbor. And then take a moment. Pray together that God would open opportunity to allow you to speak the gospel into that person's life, to share this gift with that person. Find a neighbor, share the name, pray, raise that go. Lord, we, uh, God, we thank you that you have proven yourself time and again to be trustworthy. Lord, we thank you that you've proven your, your desire to know us by, by dying for us. That God, you've proven your ability to love and persevere uh, through any sort of situation, any sort of struggle, because, Lord, you conquered death. Lord, you conquered sin. Lord, we thank you that we can trust that. If you would take a moment now and just on your own go before the Lord and begin just thanking Him for where you've seen His faithfulness. Sometimes we get so caught up in, in a situation or in a struggle or in an issue that, that our perspective is narrowed and, and we forget about how faithful God's already proven Himself to be in our lives. So just take a moment right now, broaden your perspective, look back on the week, the semester, the year. Thank the Lord for the things that you've seen him accomplish in your life, in your friends' lives, in your family's life. Just spend a moment right now celebrating what he's done, worshiping him in that. Thank him for how he's proven himself to be so faithful.